We are in our fifth week of this vision series as we strive to, as I strive to explain to you kind of the hopes and dreams of what I long to lead you guys into as a church and uh, what we want this church to be um, as we gather and as we live in the world that we live in. Last week in this vision series, we established after four weeks, we finally established the ways central mission statement. And the reason we took so long to do that, the reason we took several weeks in building up to that is that I wanted us to understand that we are who we are and we're becoming who God's intending us to be, not out of any 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 wit or, or achievement of our own. Certainly we have a responsibility to respond to him in the gospel. Certainly we have a responsibility to live in obedience but ultimately, this, this happens, this is a result of God's work. Now, anytime we walk, talk about what we do or um, our efforts to be, to, to be obedient, there's a danger in assuming that our lifestyle is what makes us acceptable to God. And, and that obviously is what we're trying to combat as we establish this church. And so, uh, uh, just, just as a refresher, this is what we've really built up in built up over the last several weeks. We are who we are, and, and we do what we do because of the gospel. That's, that's a, a phrase that you'll hear me say a ton. You'll hear, you'll, you'll hear that all over the place, and that's ultimately what we're getting at, is we are who we are, and we do what we do because of the gospel. Through God's work in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has reoriented a right priority in worship. It, it's got, the gospel is about saving people, about redeeming and restoring, but he didn't redeem us and restore us so that we could just continue to exalt ourselves or other things in the world around us. Rather, he saved us that we might worship him. He is the only one truly worthy of worship. And so as he, as he saved us and has worked for our good in the gospel... He's done that in order that we might live in, the, in the, the perspective of him or in the right orientation towards him that he is to be the central focus, the highest of all highs in our life. He is to be what we exist for. And as a result of the gospel, he has worked in us and, and made us, empowered us to worship properly through spirit and in truth. That's, that's the, that's in John, that's what, the, what, what Jesus tells uh, the people that, that or tells the woman at the well, that's what God is seeking. He is seeking a people who worship in spirit and in truth. And unfortunately, there are none out there of their own devices. None of us worship in spirit and in truth because we have figured out how to worship in spirit and truth. God does that work in the gospel. And then last week, as we come to the place where we're starting to, to really focus in on how we are going to live in light of this, and, and look at our mission and how we are going to respond in the gospel. We, we talk about that it's God's mission in the world to establish this type of worship. That's what he's doing. It's his mission to do this, to put all things right, which puts him in a place of prominence and worship and puts us in a place of, of offering worship and receiving the blessing as we offer that worship. It puts us in a place of obedience and under his authority as we live in the, in the beauty and light and majesty of our God. And so it's his mission to redeem and restore that. It's his mission to redeem and restore sinners and then make them worshipers. That's what he's about doing. So it would be silly of us to do something different than God's about doing. 
I mean, really, it would be silly of us to come together and say, well, you know, we want to put together a church that's just simply about making people smart in the Bible. Now, certainly, I want you to be smart in the Bible. Certainly, I want you to know theological terms like propitiation and, 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 and expiation. I want you to know those terms. I want you to learn those things. But it does no good if you have that knowledge and yet you just simply worship yourself because now you have that knowledge. If you're a talking head that walks around with all this knowledge and you don't have grace or love in your life because God hasn't redeemed or restored you, you're simply a talking head with a bunch of knowledge and you're, you're, you're really just a clanging symbol. You see, I want more than anything is that you are a person who worships God and through your life leads others to worship that same God. So we are striving to join Him in His mission. We, the church, are a product of God's work through no effort of our own, through no will of our own. In fact, the Bible in John, it says that we are born, we are reborn by no will of man. And then he says in chapter 3, he says that it's by the Spirit that we are given life. These things happen as a result of God. In light of that, in light of that, we must get up and do something different. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he talks about giving our lives, our everything, not just, not just our Sundays, not just our Wednesdays, not just the time that we might go overseas and go on a mission trip, not, 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 not just some compartment of our life, but our lives, our entire life as a sacrifice, and, and as our spiritual act of worship. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 15, 1 15, that he says, and we studied it last week, to be holy in all of our conduct, because as we are holy, or as God is holy, we are to be holy. And so our whole life, everything we do, the things that we think, the things that we've been called to, God intends them to reflect His glory. So we not only worship in our own attitudes, but through our life, we strive to lead others to worship this God. That's who we strive to be at the way. That's, that's what I want every member of the way to be about. That's what I want every person that visits to hear and to see at work within us. I, I don't want them to see a people who <clears throat> maybe have good ideas. Yeah, I want them to see that. I want them to see some organization and structure coming together as the church formalizes this membership process. I, I, I want them to, I want, I want people to experience a friendliness in a community where, where people are safe to be themselves, where they can be accepted for who they are and then challenged to grow to become who God wants them to be. Yes, I want people to experience that. But more than anything, I want them to experience the power of God at work in God's people that's leading people to a place where they are adoring God, not just in their thought, but in their life. You see, that's what's most important. Not that they come here and they find a cool people that sing cool songs. You know, we use electric guitars. That makes us great, right? Not if we're not singing praises to God, it doesn't. Not, a, not if it's more about playing the electric guitar than, than using a, an organ and a piano. You see, that's missing the point. Now, this begs the question. We've been, we've been dealing with questions along the way. This begs the question today that we're going to work through. <clears throat> How do we see this through? How do we accomplish this mission? How do we live this mission out? And so we're going to look to John again for that answer. If you've got your Bibles, 
<clears throat> you can turn to John chapter 1 if you've got a handout that was in the seat. The, the verses are in there. They'll be on the screen. But just remember again, as we deal with what we do, as we deal with how we respond, there's a danger in going too far. There's a danger in, in, in believing that the method that we use or the, the things that we do, that those methods are better than other methods or that these, these methods are what make us acceptable to God. And, and there's a, a, a perspective, especially in churches today, that, that methodology is so, is so raised up. Like, you know, the whole, uh, as a few years ago, the whole 40 days of purpose thing. Somebody, you know, wrote a book about these 40 days of purpose. And uh, maybe you've heard of it. I don't know. Uh, but as it works in one area, that method is then transported to other areas. And now all these churches out there do this, this thing called 40 Days of Purpose where they, where they gather and they study out of this book and they talk about the things that this book has to say, thinking that it's going to make them the people that God wants them to be. That method is going to fail in many places. God may choose to use it in many places, but it's going to fail in many places. And see, and, and so things like that have happened. And so methodology, people run from it. They're, they're scared of it. They, they, they think that, well, well, you know, I don't really like methods. I was having a conversation this week and this, this very thing came up. But just because people abuse methodology doesn't mean we can't, that, that we shouldn't use methodology and, and look at best practices and things that work. I mean, it really would be silly to try to because even abandoning methods and trying to just be an enigma of existence is a method of living. Everything we do because of who we are in living in a physical world is a method. There's a method to it. So we can't run from it. We just need to strive to understand that it's not the method, but the message that has power. It's not the method that makes us acceptable but the work of God through his message that makes us acceptable. You see, after Jesus' resurrection, he's sitting with the disciples. He's meet, he, he comes to the disciples. He appears to them miraculously, and they're in this room locked up, and actually Thomas isn't with them. And he says to them, in the midst of this conversation, he says to them, as I have been sent, so I am going to send you. And in that moment, Jesus kind of establishes this this. Uh, method of leaders leading the mission. There's more than just his 10 disciples in the room, probably. There's probably some other people, but he's talking specifically first to his disciples. But beyond that, we see that, that Jesus has used this methodology that now he is establishing a leadership and he's giving a mission to a church to be led by called leaders. That's a method. And there's nothing wrong with that. So what kind of method are we going to use? How are we going to go about see, seeing the, the mission of God worked out among us? How are we going to become a people who worship God and, and lead others to worship God? First and foremost, we start where we've been the last four weeks in the gospel and all of our life as a response to the gospel. But then practically looking at the examples that Jesus gave us. You see, Jesus wasn't just setting up a method for leading the church in the world. He wasn't just setting up a method of mission in the world or a method of ministry in the world. He was letting his disciples see that he's not only their source of salvation, but he's also the example to be followed. And so for us to answer the question, how are we going to live out this mission? How are we going to perform this mission? 
We can only look to the life of Christ and follow his example. So we're going to build that from John 1 today. I'm going to begin reading in John 1. We'll read the first five verses and then we'll skip down to verse 11. Not pulling anything out of context. There's just a, there's a paragraph in there that doesn't, that's not necessarily, it's not necessary to show you what I want you to see today. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. It's beautiful. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You see, what that says is that Jesus has always been. It demonstrates a, a, an existence with God, a distinction from God and a sameness with God. And so we see the, the beginnings of the Trinity to be poured out in this passage. It says that He is the source of creation, that Jesus was there when, when, when let there be light was proclaimed. He was there when the light sprang into, into being. He was there when the sun and the moon were placed in their positions. He was there when the, when the waters were, were, were moved back and the land was made evident. He was there. When man was molded out of the dust and life was breathed into him, he was there when, when the, the man's rib was taken and the woman was made and she was presented to him as the first husband and wife. He was there for all of that. He was there. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's what Jesus was. He, he was life. He was light. He, he comes and he brings illumination into the darkness. He makes people be able to see and understand the difference. We live in a world filled with lies. We live in a world that is deceived. And he brings light in and he illuminates the lie and he shows them the difference and he brings with him life because from the fall of man, through sin, death has ruled, but in Christ, life is made possible. See, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. There is no way that darkness can extinguish light. In fact, the darker it gets, the brighter the light seems. He was in the world. This is verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. You hear that? Not by lineage and not by any will of your own. That's what we've been talking about for several weeks, that we are the work of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as, the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, there's a lot of things that we could discuss. I could pull a lot of verses and a lot of passages in, and we could build this, this perspective of Christ. And what that would do for us is it would establish for us a Christology. It would establish us a theology of Jesus Christ. And, and, and I want you to know Jesus. I want you to continue to get to know Jesus. In fact, I think that that's a, 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 a point in theology that you will never grow tired of knowing and growing to know more. You will not be dissatisfied if you look to the Bible to know Jesus. 
I, I encourage you to look to the Bible to know and, and understand and learn of Jesus. Continue to develop your Christology. But for the purpose of answering our question, I want you to look at this passage in light of his coming to us and the example it sets as we strive to understand how he was sent so that we can know how we are sent. He is our example. He's the first missionary. He's the first ambassador of God our Father sent to us. And Jesus came here. This is the first point in your slide. Jesus came here, and this is incarnational ministry. You could call it incarnational mission, whatever. Either one of those words, I think they're interchangeable at this point. So in the beginning, he was with God. The world was created through him. And he came into the world and brought light and life. And then he shows us exactly how he did that in verse 14. See, I really read the first part of that to give you the context. But I, I really want you to think about verse 14. He came in, put on flesh, and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ took on a whole new nature coming from God to us. I mean, you think about that. He humbled himself. He was in the presence of the Father. No separation, perfect unity, completely perfect, not needing or wanting or longing for anything else. And yet, because of his great love for his creation, in some way that's beyond my my imagination completely he steps out of it and humbles himself paul talks about it in philippians he humbles himself becomes a servant he humbles himself so much he even makes himself obedient to death that's what paul says in philippians but he came here and this is incarnational ministry what he's doing is he is coming not not proclaiming or throwing rocks from a distance and hoping that it makes the message clear he comes and tells us the message he comes and lives among us he dwells here i i i don't know if you can even i mean for us to grasp this, I think it's too big, but I think we can kind of get a picture of it as we think about where we live in the world. I mean, we live in an extremely religious city. The church is all over the place. And one of the reasons I didn't want to plant the church here was because there's churches all over the place. Everybody has a church. They don't need another church. There's, they've got one. They may not know the pastor and they may not know the name of the church, but they've got a church. But these religious people, they have these lists of, of rules that they just, man, you know, I'm not going to go in that place and I'm not going to go in that place and I'm not going to partake in that thing and I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that and, 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 and I'm not going to be around those kind of people. And they got these standards for which that they don't want anything to do with these people and so they, they make themselves a, a, a wall that they live behind. Imagine if our Savior Jesus Christ had said, they're too dirty. I, I don't want to go into that. But he dwelt among us. He lived here. An incarnational ministry intentionally goes to people. 
Incarnational ministry intentionally goes to people. It, it doesn't sit at a distance and scream. It doesn't leave tracks in a gas pump that are offensive and hurtful and demonstrate a great truth but show no grace. Incarnational ministry goes to people. It gets up off its duff and it steps outside its door and it knocks on the door of the neighbor. It talks to the person in the cubie next to you at the office. It considers the waitress or waiter who's having a bad day and doesn't serve you as you think you ought to be served. It considers that they might be having a bad day. It thinks of them as worthy of one to worship the one true God we know. The parent that raises their children in ways that you wouldn't agree with, it goes to them. Incarnational ministry dwells among a people who you may not see eye to eye with or who you may not agree with um, in, in theory, who you may not agree with in philosophy. It goes to those people. And so when Jesus stepped out of heaven and he came to earth, when, when he's living here, he's attacked by, by, by the religious people and he said, he's, he, he's insulted. And they say, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I don't, there's not a worse insult in that day, I, I don't think. They hated tax collectors. They vehemently hated tax collectors because they were, they, 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 they were, they were traitors against their own people. And obviously, these religious folks, they didn't sin. But they sure looked down on those that did. So when Jesus stepped out of heaven and, and he came to earth and he, and he comes to this place and he lives in this place and he, he dwells among them, he sits down and lets prostitutes honor him by washing his feet when the religious people wouldn't. And when the, when the woman caught in adultery is brought to him, he doesn't condemn her with the crowd. He says, you who have committed no sin, you know, you throw the first stone. You who are worthy to condemn her, you, you go ahead and throw that stone. And Jesus went to tax collectors. In fact, one of his followers, his 12 apostles, was a tax collector. He went to ordinary folks, fishermen, people we would overlook uneducated. They weren't worthy to be taught the traditions and, and, the, and the religion of the day. Certainly they learned it to a certain age, but they weren't worthy to be raised up in it and to become rabbis and teachers. Jesus went to those people and he said, to, and he said in response to the insults, he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And, and people who are well, they don't need doctors. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. In fact, in, in a way, that kind of was a rebuke all in itself. Because later he's going to tell them how they are so unrighteous. And he's going to lay the religious people open and let them see the death that rules inside of them. You see, when Jesus came into this world, he stepped into a place that stunk of rot and decay of death. It's like he stepped into the trash dump and he breathed it in and he, he felt a, a, a weight and, and, and a, a concern and a compassion for the lost. And so he went to them. He went to them. 
He showed us incarnational ministry and He showed us that incarnational ministry intentionally goes to people. See, we live in Springfield, Missouri, and, and as I said, it's extremely religious. But that religion hasn't served us well at all times. I'll never forget the story a pastor shared from his pulpit. You may know him. I'm not going to tell you his name. But he shared a story of... of um, he was at the, a Springfield Cardinals game. And as he sat there, and, and the Cardinals, I guess they scored a run, and something happened that, that everyone appreciated, and the person next to him cheers and spills some beer on him. And he talked about how dirty it made him feel. It's not just pastors that act like that, though. I need to clarify this. I think there are certainly places we do not need to go. I'm not going to go into the cabaret or whatever that other one on Glenstone is, the strip clubs. I'm not going to go there. I can't go into those places and not sin. But does that mean we shouldn't be reaching out to the girls who dance there? Does that not mean that we shouldn't go to those kind of people? I, I'm probably, I'm probably just because of who I am and, and in my own fallenness and brokenness, I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time with people who are drinking heavily and partying all the time. I had a proclivity towards that when I was a sinner. Well, I'm still a sinner when I was not a Christian. Let me say it that way. So I'll, I'll sit down with a group of my friends and I'll, I'll drink a beer from time to time and I'll have a drink from time to time. I'm probably not going to go into a lot of bars and try to raise conversation because I know who I was. And it's very likely that I might jump into that sin again because there's still a part of me that enjoys that party. I regret it the next morning. But while it's happening, it's easy to enjoy. But certainly there are people in this room that could go into those places and sit down and strike up a conversation with people who have concerns, who are trying to drown their sorrows in their beer. I don't know, that sounds like a country song. It might be even. I don't listen to country music, so I don't know. There's certainly places we don't need to go. But I can tell you this, there is no person that lives in Springfield that we should not be seeking a way to go to. Strippers don't always stay at the strip club. Drunk people aren't always in the bars. Incarnational ministry intentionally goes to people. And most often it's people that you don't, wouldn't necessarily, or certainly a religious person wouldn't deem worthy to hear the message. As we go, we recognize also in Jesus' life that incarnational ministry is not about, it's not about us um, living behind our walls. It's not about us coming to this place where we are so, so separated from the world that we can't touch them, that we can't engage them, that we can't speak to them, that we can't relate to them. And see, to be incarnational, we must gather and scatter for God's glory. 
There, there are certainly times that we as the church need to gather as the church. We need to come together as the church and take care of church issues and do church things and talk about church needs and, 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 and learn from the Bible as church people being spoken to as church people. But Jesus' intention for his followers was never to be isolated from the world, but rather to be distinct from the world. He called us to be holy, which is distinct, but it's not isolated. See, to be incarnational, we have to gather and scatter for God's glory. We have to come together at times intentionally to be the church. And we have to scatter intentionally to lead others to worship God. That means in your neighborhoods, at your jobs, the houses or the the businesses that you frequent, in all the places you go. You and I carry the light of Jesus. We now have the life of Jesus and we have the message that brings the life of Jesus. And so to be incarnational, we have to step outside of our house. We have to step outside the walls of the church. We have to step outside the, the gathering of our community group. We have to gather and we have to scatter for God's great glory. And that leads us to the next point is that incarnational ministry is about revealing God's glory. Incarnational ministry reveals God's glory. You see Jesus come and, and they, they recognize Jesus as, as in, in his glory, the glory of the one and only. You see, but all the way through Jesus' life, you know what he said? He said, this isn't for me. This is about the Father. John's writing this letter with, with the, the perspective of history and he's looking back and he sees all that Jesus did and he sees that it brought great glory to him. But the whole time Jesus was here, he was pointing to the Father. He said, I came to exalt my Father. I came to lead you to worship Him. Incarnational ministry is about revealing God's glory. There's a kid's song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I'll let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. That's what that's about. But where does that light come from? Where, where does that start at? Are, are, are we, do we naturally have this light inside of us that, oh, we can just look inside, figure it out, and poof, there's the light, and it just starts shining? No, that's why we started where we did for four weeks, demonstrating that this is all God's work. And now it's just our responsibility to let people see the work that he's doing in us. So incarnational ministry is not about turning on itself and, and lifting ourselves up and making people look at us and say, oh, those are good people. It's not about us gaining any glory or stealing it from God. One of the worst perspectives I think that, that, that happened in our church environment and in this extremely religious culture is that people come into churches and they, and they look at church people and they think, oh, these people got it all figured out. If you're here today and you think you've got it all figured out, I, I want you to know you don't. But you know the one who does. See, the, the thing about our church and what I want for our church is not for us to think and, and come to a place where we just are always beating ourselves up. Certainly, we need to recognize the truth about who we are. But more than that, I want us coming to a place where we're willing to admit freely that we are broken people who don't have all the answers, but who know the one that does. 
and that love Him because He came to bring light. He came to bring truth. He came to, to show us and illuminate and, and, and give us a right path. We gather as a broken people. Some of us farther along and more mature and able to turn and teach others and raise others up to turn and teach others. But every one of us dependent upon the grace of God. This is not about how witty we can be or about how we can make people perceive us. This is about demonstrating God's glory through us. In the short time I've been a pastor and led this church, I can't count the number of times that I've spoken with people who have come and have just been hurt by churches because they go into churches and they, and they hear someone say something that they don't agree with. And rather than talk, and find out, hey, that person's not a believer. Or that person is a brand new Christian. And they're just being grown up just like you. They get their feelings hurt and they run away. Because in our world, we want to make it all about us. And as I said at the beginning, I want this to be all about God. As people come and visit with us and enter and we engage them, I want them to see a people who humbly and are ready to admit we are broken depending upon God's grace. And we are being restored, but the answers we have and the, and, and the, and the things that we figured out are because God's done them in us and a result of His work in us. See, God saves God restores, and He does it, and so He deserves the glory. God deserves to be celebrated because He's the one that made the gospel. He's the one that had the plan. And God's people, being authentic and, and real about struggles, have opportunity every day to reveal God's glory. See, Jesus didn't come to save the righteous or to call them. They obviously don't need saving. He hung out with sinners and tax collectors. I, I would go so far as to say that there's some churches in Springfield that Jesus wouldn't even go to because they're more about religion. I'm not saying that about everyone. I, I, I know there's good churches in Springfield. But there's churches that live on their legalistic perspectives every week and then these people gather and they they put on masks and they try to demonstrate how good and and how much how, how good they are and how much people should approve them because of their good works jesus didn't go to those people he didn't come to call those people and as people as god's people living a moral and upright life with the right motive doesn't mean that we can just sit back. Oh, Jesus came to sinners and tax collectors so I can just live however I want to and do whatever I want to and it doesn't matter anymore because, you know, God's grace is sufficient. No. You see, the Word also tells us that we're to be holy, to live those moral upright lives. Living those moral upright lives with the right motives to see God glorified, that brings God glory. So as we gather and scatter, God is intending us not to be glorifying ourselves, but to be glorifying Him. 
And as we gather and scatter, God has given us tools to ensure that our lives can bring Him glory. And the tools of incarnational ministry are grace and truth. Jesus came. He dwelt among us. We saw His glory. And we saw His grace and His truth. Maybe you've heard it said, truth without grace is cruel and grace without truth is a lie or is deceiving. It's no grace at all. And the reality is, is that in our personalities, I think that there, we lean one way or the other most often. Some of us lean to truth and we just think they need to hear the truth. And so I'm just going to share with them the truth. I'm going to smack them in the face and, and they're going to hear the truth. You're a cheater. You're a liar. You're an adulterer. You deserve to go to hell. Yeah, that's true. And then there's others of us that don't want to ever talk about or confront someone in sin and just give them grace. Oh, I will stand with you and I will love you and you are, you are, you are made valuable in God's eyes and, and just keep doing and blessing and loving and never hold accountable. I think we need to figure out a balance and we need to be working towards a balance because Jesus didn't come with one or the other. He came with both. Truth without grace is cruel. But grace without truth is no grace at all. We must strike a balance. Grace being God's power, working for our good even though we don't deserve it. I mean, you consider what Jesus did as He came into the world and the mercy ministries that He performed, the healings and, and the teaching and, the, and the, the demonstration of authority, that was all demonstration of grace. Even those people He didn't heal. Even those people that He didn't make well, those people were receiving His grace just in Him coming. And we often think, oh, God is so gracious because He blessed me with something I really enjoy. God is gracious because my life is going well now. But what happens when your family members are diagnosed with cancer or your best friend's daughter is killed in a car accident? What happens when things, when, when the job is lost and now you don't know how you're going to put food on the table? What happens? Is, is God suddenly not gracious anymore? God's grace isn't measured by the things that we determine are good for us. God's grace is that His power is at work in our best interest. And Jesus came with that grace. And He did wonderful things, but He also allowed some people to hurt so that they might see and know who He is and understand what He's about. And then for a people who would reject him, he, he hung on a cross. Working for our good, even when we don't deserve it. And as recipients of God's grace, as, as people who have received God's grace, we're now stewards of God's grace. Peter talks about this in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 4. He tells people, he says, the end of all things is near, and he builds this, this, uh, this, this urgency. It's going to end soon. So get up and serve the way that God has called you to serve and gifted you to serve as stewards of God's varied grace. Grace looks a lot of different ways. It comes in many different forms. And you, as a recipient of God's grace, have a grace to share with people. 
whether you can teach, whether you just have a heart that is compassionate, maybe you just have this desire to serve behind the scenes. Maybe you just want to open your home up and allow people to come in. How, how whatever it is that He has given you to do, that is His grace that He wants to work through you that the world might see it and experience it. You are a steward of grace. Jesus demonstrates that in His example. And we're called to it now as His people. But truth is the undeniable facts of God, mankind, and the created order. God is perfect, holy, righteous, just, loving, merciful, gracious. And He is all of these things all the time. God is a God of wrath and God is a God of love. He is these things and His truth says who He is. And there is no denying it. He's the one that says 2 plus 2 equals 4. He's the one that says if I throw an apple up, it's going to fall down and it might hit me in the head. He's the one who says that the earth revolves around the sun and not the sun revolving around the earth. He's the one that put the world together and made it round rather than flat. He's the one that's made all of this to be true. There's nothing true that He hasn't made to be true. When we look at our at one another's attire, and Matt, he, he's wearing a white shirt because God said that's what's going to happen when light hits that. Somebody didn't just figure out how to make dye pretty. God made that true. And I, if you're colorblind, you might not see it the same way, but the truth is, is that it's still white. It doesn't matter what you see. Truth is the undeniable facts about God. It's the undeniable facts about mankind. I am a sinner and I struggle with sin and I worship things other than the Creator God. And apart from Him, I am a depraved and pitiful man. So are you. But the truth is that for whatever reason, God looked on His creation. And in spite of our depravity and the stench and rot and decay, that He demonstrated great grace and He sent His Son into the middle of it. That He might dwell among us. That He might make a way. That we might enjoy a relationship with Him. You see, this removes all credit from us. This removes all value from what we can come up with on our own and places all value on our great God. And calls us to a place where we adore and worship only God. This is His mission. To bring this truth about Himself, about us, and to demonstrate it in the world around us so that we might also know His grace. Without God's truth, we wouldn't know His grace. Because we wouldn't deserve, or I'm sorry, we, we wouldn't need His grace. Because in His, in, in our lie that we've accepted, in the, in the lies that we believe, I can be good enough on my own. I don't need someone to save me. I can save myself. If I just, if I just believe it hard enough, I will just, you know, I'll take care of myself. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and I can take care of life. Those are lies. Without God's truth, we wouldn't know His grace. 
But without God's grace, his truth would crush us. He brought them both. And so as we gather and scatter, we have his truth. That's why it's so important that we learn from the Bible. That's why it's so important that we know and understand the theological terms that that we can turn and talk to others. But it's also why it's so important that we recognize we're not worthy to be standing where we're standing. So that as we talk to others, we're not trying to crush them with the weight of that truth, but we're trying to bring them to a place where they recognize the beauty of the Savior who we call Jesus. And we gather and we scatter. And I introduced to you the first couple of weeks, gospel rhythms and how practically we see begin to see these things applied in our life and as a church. And I want you to get this gospel rhythms of gathering and scattering or the temple, our corporate time together, where we, where, where, where we gather intentionally to be the church and deal with church issues and see church needs met. At table in our community groups, as we gather in smaller groups to see uh, mission and ministry and discipleship and hospitality practiced. And in the town, in the, in the places that we live outside of the church, away from the church, where it's just you and the world. Not you against the world, but you living for the world to hope and dream and, and, and pray that you might see them come to know the truth and experience God's grace. You see, gospel rhythms at work in our life lead us to a place where we need to gather as the church. And we need that time at temple or at worship gathering or whatever term you want to use, but where we're preached where we receive preaching from the Bible and we're able to practice the communion and the sacraments that Jesus has called us to practice. And even though that's an intentional gathering of the church, I don't think it was ever intended to be done in such a way that we didn't allow outsiders to come in and see it and experience it. We need to invite our friends here who aren't believers. They need to hear God's message. They need to see God's people responding to God's truth. They need to understand the grace that comes. And there will be times, of course, that in speaking directly to Christians, non-Christians will be offended or bothered. But it's our responsibility to be as intelligible to them as possible, to be seeker-intelligible not design this for just the lost person, but design it in such a way that at least they can hear the gospel, that they might respond to the gospel. It's our responsibility to invite as many people to these gatherings as possible. It's our responsibility to gather in small groups so that we can know one another and relate to one another and find that safe place where we can develop deep relationship with one another. We see God doing that through the gospel in His church. He calls us to that. So we need those times where we've got that safe place. But in those community groups, as we gather at the table, in those community groups, we need times where we put down the Bibles and quit hiding behind the Bible study and we step outside the door into the neighborhood that we're meeting in and go on mission. Or rather than meeting for a Bible study that particular week, you find out that someone in your group has a need and maybe they're moving their house or maybe, maybe there's something going on that they need a car fixed or, or, or whatever and you seek to strive to meet that need. Or maybe, just maybe, you care enough about one another enough 
that you don't put down the Bible and not do Bible study, but you find another time in the week to be part of one another's life and you involve people in that. You bring your neighbors in. You bring your coworkers in, the, the waitress that you prayed for, the waiter that, that rather than snub and not give a tip, you invite to your community group. You see, in, in that community group, you get this gathering and scattering all working together. It's not, it's not intentionally about only gathering. It's about gathering after scattering and bringing as many people to be a part of that and see and experience God's glory through the community of his people. And certainly, we can't be together 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Certainly, we've got to get up and we've got to go to work. We're going to stop at a gas station along the way. On the way, we're going to drive in traffic. We're going to get out in our neighborhood and we're going to cut our grass. And unless you have a great community group and they come over and cut your grass for you, you're probably going to do that by yourself. I'm still trying to get my community group to come cut my grass. Hint, hint. But that's the, that's the reality of it. At some point in your life, in, in the, the, the days and, and rhythms of your life, you're going to find yourself, you, in the world with God's grace and God's truth. Who's responsible at that point? Is it the lost person that lives across the street from you or are you responsible? Am I responsible? That Jesus didn't say, hey, come and figure out a way to get to me. He came to us. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. And there are going to be times we're going to be in a world that is stinks of death and sin. And it's not going to make us dirty. We're just going to shine that much brighter. Because as that light reveals God's grace and His truth and His glory, it's not going to be us people are looking to or, or thinking are great. But they're going to be able to turn their eyes upon the Creator God who made them and who has a great desire to save them. Whether we're at temple, whether we're at the table, or whether we're in the town, we're stewards of these tools that he's given us to use. It's our responsibility to go and use them. Let's pray.